0: The story of two best friends opening a restaurant together is something that people can get behind. I think many of us over the years have talked with our best friend about having a business together. And so that was something that people got excited about and they talked about it. And because the news cycle was fairly bleak and it really resonated. It was awesome. You're listening to The Taste Podcast, podcast.
1: I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel.
2: Today is a fun episode because Matt is talking to Daniel Holtzman, the chef at The Meatball Shop and friend of the podcast.
1: Yeah, Daniel Holtzman is a good friend of mine. We we co-write a column on Taste. He's been a buddy for years. Dan is now living in Los Angeles, where we recorded this interview um, but we go back to New York we talk about his time working at Le Bernard Dan in high school, which is, he's got lots of good stories. Um, and also, what excites him in food today? Daniel Holzman has many opinions.
2: Later on, Matt will be speaking to Matt and Ted Lee, a writer duo made up of two brothers.
1: Yeah, Matt and Ted, they've they've written about Southern food uh, for years. They've been known as these go-to things. Uh, Thought leaders in the South, but in their latest book, Hot Box, it's a little different. They talk about this the world of catering, um, the seedy underbelly of catering, and they actually went undercover for a couple of years and worked in the catering industry. It's a really fascinating book, and we talk about it in this interview.
2: That will be coming up after this conversation between Matt and Dan Holtzman.
0: Daniel Holzman, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Big fan. Very glad to be here. Muchas gracias, as they say here, in what used to be Mexico.
1: Used to be Mexico. We're actually in Venice. We're in your home. You have moved to Venice, California.
0: I live by the beach. I surf. Um, do a lot of juicing in the morning. You know, very fresh. Pilates. Reformer only, <laughs> but you moved here. You lived in New
1: York for over a decade, and you've um, since you've moved back to L.A. and We can talk about a little bit of your cooking history because I want to get into that. But let's just like set the table a little bit. We've been friends for a long time. We're writing partners. Um, we've written column for a couple places, Savour, and now at Taste, we've the helped. inimitable, yeah, taste right, Shine cooking. it up. But like, what,
0: like, how did we meet? You remember? Um, I feel like we met. We certainly met some at it, some function surrounding the meatball shop. I don't think you were coming. I think you came into the meatball shop, but it wasn't. Yeah. For was what was it for?
1: I think I went to your like opening night. Um, was it uh, opening night? I think I went. I think someone from your PR team uh, invited me in, and I met you and, and maybe Mike. Sarah Abel. Yeah, Sarah, my old Sable. neighbor. Yes, yeah, Abel. She invited it in. That was like a while ago,
0: and then we we you know we've been in the same circles for a while. I remember uh, regarding the writing, talking to you six or seven years or eight years ago and saying like, you know, I really, really would love to have a column for the New York Times where I just give my opinion. And you were so kind when you said, you know, well, you know, I think that a lot of journalists work really hard and take their careers seriously. And so if you were interested in in something like that, I don't think that's out of the out of reason, but you might want to start with, you know. Like learning how to write and having some like level of respect for the fact that I went to school, worked my <laughs> ass off.
1: Oh man, I didn't crush it like that. We we, we came to a compromise that we were able to work our our kind of collaboration and you develop, I write, you write, I I'm learning try. how to
0: write, which is an yeah. awesome skill that is I'm um, I'm proud and excited about and also is so much harder than than um I give it credit. It's so much easier to read. I feel like reading you just <laughs> I know. No problem. Especially now that they've got those audio books. It's oh, like I, nothing. I, I
1: love... I actually consider that reading. Is that, is that wrong
0: of me? A lot of people give me grief and they tell me, you didn't read that book. And, you know, I remember in school where there were auditory and visual learners. And if I absorb the information, I can't imagine the author is upset at me for how I, <laughs> you know, respected their work. Yeah, yeah.
1: It could be through the spoken word.
0: And I think that, like, especially in New York... How much time do you spend walking from to? And that time could be spent, you know, also reading, not to mention you can multitask Candy Crush with Audible uh, 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 books and just get so much more done.
1: I agree. We so we write a column for taste called 100 questions for my friend, the chef. You've appeared on the podcast in the podcast version of the column. But we we write like, you know, pretty regularly depends on our, our our mood and our whims when we get it out there. But what do you want to do with this column? Like, what's your goal?
0: My ultimate dream would be to have um, all, of, all of the cooking questions answered in, in a database and ideally in a, in a form, in a, in a print form, where someone could have like a beautiful book that could be a reference volume, a tome. Tome. Is that tome. a tome? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Tome. And then I, I, think, I think something really beautiful that, that people, when I, and I don't mean beautiful in like the California Venice, um, like, you know, oh, it's so, beautiful. so beautiful. I meant it like in an actually like a beautifully produced work of yeah like a really manufacturing beautiful work. i like, went to a restaurant in, in san francisco the other day called tartine manufactory
1: oh i love that place it's amazing yeah this pruitt
0: like, shout out she's great what i love about um about that is it's like you know there was like provisions and now it's manufactory manufactory it's, it's cool and i was like wow that's cool
1: yeah but let's talk about you moving to la like first off i want to know Like, how's it like living here in January?
0: In all fairness, I moved to LA in November and I've, it's, it's, so I've been here for two and a half something months, but I've been away for like five of those weeks. So I haven't really gotten, so I'm still kind of, I can't really speak to the lifestyle of LA with great authority. I can say so far it's awesome and I'm so happy and excited. It's a little bit of a shock. It's like when you're driving downhill and you gotta, you just gotta shift the gears a little bit and get used to the lifestyle. Um, I'm very intense for Los Angeles. You're very intense, okay. Um, and and I don't, and I I think I'm not laid back for New York, but I'm certainly not the most intense New Yorker. No. But in L.A. I'm I'm a little intense, so I've 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 had to give it a little bit of a of a slowdown, and to appreciate, stop and smell the roses. Um, there's an efficiency to life out here that allows you to have more time in your day, which is lovely.
1: It seems that way. It seems like there's definitely a little bit more presence and mindfulness to use. Incredible buzzwords that I hate to use, but they're, I'm being specific because I think it's true people are more mindful here.
0: I feel like if you are a New Yorker, the thing that you, um, you you know, if you were going to say something negative about L.A., you'd speak to the people. You'd say like, oh, but those people. And the most shocking thing that i found is... In the whole time I've been here, I've met, like, tons of awesome people that I've got really some already meaningful relationships, and I'm looking forward to more of that.
1: But... Let's be real. You've lived here before. It's not like you've only been in L.A. for a few months. Like, tell me a little bit about your history with L.A. and San Francisco working in pro- professional kitchens, and then we can go back a little further to New York. But I want to hear about L.A. first.
0: So I, I moved to Los Angeles from Las Vegas when I was, I think, 19 or 20 years old. And my big brother was, was living in California, and I had lost my job. In Vegas, and he said, "Come out to." He actually was. I think it was actually the line from Die Hard. It's like, "Come out to the coast, we'll have a few laughs." And um, I got, I got in my car in nineteen something. I don't know. Oh, maybe it was a motorcycle. I don't remember. Mm. We're got talking out. about in the nineties. The it was the nineties. I was yeah, yeah. Um, real Spicoli, and I moved out here, and it was the first time in my life that I decided to move away from being in a four star French restaurant. I got a job at a restaurant called Ashe. Which was a
1: uh, Which is called AXE, which AXE, which, which is, is called like in the English language it's axe.
0: Yeah, but I think this is like the the like I don't know, Ethiopian word for like love power or something. Yeah, yeah. It was very hippied out. And in all fairness, also really very delicious. Listener
1: and, Google Aceh Venice and you'll find some cool stories about it for sure.
0: It the lady um who owned it, Joanna, um, had really great taste and the restaurant was really really delicious and i went there as a cook and i got a job as she she made me the chef like three weeks in um i think they she was having a hard time kind She's of desperate like, for a chef and yeah and i came across and and wasn't my intention to be the chef there but um i had a really awesome time and it was it was it was interesting because it was the first time i got to appreciate rustic or kind of less formal food if that makes sense definitely and realize that it doesn't there's, you know, I guess at the time, great restaurants were fancy restaurants only, and so it was early on in the in the evolution of kind of like casual dining.
1: And I want to backtrack a little bit. You grew up in Manhattan on the Upper East Side, and you uh, delivered food as a kid. That was one of your first jobs in food. You were a delivery.
0: Delivery boy, I believe. Give me they a call good those. delivery boy. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Delivery when they're, boy. when they're my when um, they're young. gender, they call them delivery boys. Delivery boys. But you have crazy delivery stories. Give me a good one. So
0: the, the in all fairness, like every single, there was not, I, I always dreamed of that moment that you see in the traditional porno where the delivery boy shows up and, you know, she's in her bathrobe. That never happened. Um, and, you know. I extended my delivery career as long as I could in hopes that that would be, that was like the pinnacle that never, yeah. that I aspired to this apex and never. Anyway, unfortunately the craziest thing I can say is that I, I played the harmonica at the time. Um, and I would walk down the street playing the harmonica. The real, de- real, real um,
1: blues traveler fan.
0: Uh, I was not a big Dave Matthews, Dave Matthews guy, <laughs> Blues Traveler, but is they, was Dave Matthews the Blues Traveler? Or was or are they different? Two separate bands. Did they both feature but harmonica? Featured the harmonica. I was going more
1: Blues Traveler <laughs> because you know Blues Traveler featured the harmonica yeah. during the mid '90s. But
0: but who was the guy with the curly hair and like the poetic guy that he played the harmonica also? John Popper from Blues Traveler. No, Bob Dylan. Oh yeah.
1: Oh uh, yeah. Ha. Hey. Hey.
0: So I don't have any. But I did have a lot of seminal experiences as a, as a delivery boy. I started out when I was very young, like 11 years old, delivering pizzas for the, for the neighborhood. It was the first time I ever saw um, uh, uh, um, pornographic materials at the pizzeria. Yeah. And that was big and exciting <laughs> for me. Um, I was 11 or 12, and yeah. I, it was a real discovery.
1: It felt like a Playboy.
0: Uh, No, they had it on the TV. I think it was, like, Channel J. Oh, my gosh. They had Channel 1 through 32, A through U, and, like, J. And Channel J, I think it was, like, Robin Bird.
1: Oh, yeah, Robin Bird. Shout out. Everyone knows Robin Bird. Also,
0: there was a bunch of commercials. Um, It was pretty special.
1: But what about, like, just delivering food, like, too? Like, I feel like there's some other, like, crazy shit you saw.
0: Unfortunately, again, like, you know, I know a lot of friends of mine that delivered food and other things. It's like organic food in pot or something. But I was a pretty conservative guy, and I just delivered for the dough. I wanted the tips.
1: So you eventually um, landed after your delivery career. Delivery days. Delivery days. The salad days. The salad days. Things got kind of real after the salad salad days. You ended up working at Le Bernardin.
0: Le Bernardin. Le Bernardin. Le Bernardin.
1: For Eric Repair.
0: So tell me about that. I mean, you're 17 years old. So at the time I was... 14 and a half or something like that. I was working at a restaurant called Samolitas. It was a, no, that was my first job. I was working at the candle cafe candle, for joy yeah. and Bart. Yeah. Still there. And a testament to vegan food and the vegan lifestyle, because they, two of them look exactly the same 20 years later. It's incredible. I think either they're vampires or, or it's a real thing. This, this raw vegan, um, healthful diet and they're lovely people. And their restaurant is still there and really good. And I was delivering food, and I would, was into the kitchen. There was something about the machismo of the mm. tattoos and the fire and the guys in the kitchen. And so I would work in the kitchen, um, kind of between deliveries. And a friend of mine, her father was a maitre d' of La Bernadette, and he came into the restaurant. Her mother had come into the restaurant. He offered to bring me into La Bernadette to meet Eric. And how old were you at the time? I was 14. So you weren't 14. 14, Go into the restaurant kitchen... Um, uh, after school on a Wednesday, I had a three o'clock appointment. I get off school at three. I show up at three thirty. He shows up at three forty-five, and he goes, you are late. And I was like, uh, he goes, luckily I was taking a haircut. So I won't penalize you this time. You have a job the French don't, don't pronounce H's. I don't know yeah, if that yeah, yeah. have a job. Um, and, and that was incredible. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't even understand we didn't go out to restaurants as a kid. Like I went out to restaurant two or three times a year. Although my father's visitation rights did auspiciously uh coincide with dollar whopper night at Burger King, so we did sometimes find ourselves
1: yeah. <laughs> at Burger King. Yeah.
0: Um the that's not a joke. I mean, it's no, funny. No, It's real. you <laughs> real. told me
1: that story several times. I know your, your Dollar Whopper yeah. with dad Yeah, it's time. a
0: special, a special. My father yeah. is a actually a wonderful, lo- he, he, loving That's going
1: to be a personality to my Dollar Whopper with dad. Yeah. Like, it's going to happen. Dollar Whopper with dad. Yeah.
0: the um, It's all about that special sauce. And flame broiled. <laughs> and you're away right away. It wasn't yet, all, but they still no. gave that. Yeah. So the Eric and LaBernadine was after school on Wednesdays and summers. <laughs> wow. and it was something I didn't uh, understand it all, but I got a lot of positive feedback. You know, people would say, Oh my gosh, you work at this incredible restaurant. And you know, they had so much to say that I think that gave, you know, made me want to want more of that. It was the positive feedback cycle. What were you doing?
1: Like as a 14 year old, having not gone to culinary school,
0: having done some delivery, like were you working in the kitchen? What were you- First job was um, there's a, they, at the time when they built the restaurant, I don't think refrigeration was quite as advanced. Okay. And so they, um, they kept the fish away from the fire on the separate side of the restaurant. And, they, and my job was actually called the fish pass. My job was to take the fish from the refrigerator and bring it to the person that would cook it. Um, I also cleaned calamari. Mm. I was the squid oh, kid. God. Um, or my dad called me the squid yid. Um, <laughs> uh, and, I cleaned fifty pounds of calamari a day, and I had a really cute story actually one time, which was, I, um, I went in the the calamari. I guess there were some some calamari that had maybe been questionable yeah. uh, freshness that had been mixed in somehow to a batch, and they had said, you know, like Eric was like, you need to smell every piece. And I went into the office at some point, and I interrupted, and I said, you know, chef, I've I, I've smelled every single piece, and he goes, I know. Look in the mirror, and my nose. Was stained black from the squid ink. It was really cute. I could only imagine this curly haired, you know, cherub. Yeah. That I was still.
1: But Eric, I mean, he's had his ups and downs with temper, and he's clearly pulled his shit together. But now being a Buddhist, he was on our podcast. Like how many? Like maybe in number fifteen or something. So you can check it up, check it back. But was so was he like pretty?
0: I think well, you know. I was there. So, the original chef of Lebernais was a guy named Gilbert Laco, of course, and he passed away, and Eric kind of yeah rose quickly suddenly you know? he passed away like, um, yeah. and uh eric he was he was intense, but I would say he was always really kind. The kitchen yeah. had a very strong kind of European militaristic um structure that over the course of my like five year tenure Five year tenure? Can yes. you say that? Five year tenure? Sure. Yeah. Because it's, it's not
1: 10 years. It's not 10 years. It's 10 years. As a child, I would assume it yeah. would have been 10 years, tenure. but it's actually
0: 10 years. Just like when you go to the Five and Dime, and it's not all nickels and dimes, it's, some of it's real expensive. Yeah. I hate that. Um, it's true. So over that course of that time, I did see a change. And it was, I think it was part of, you know, in the zeitgeist, the the, the world was, was changing and people were understanding that positive reinforcement was a stronger motivator and a better management technique than than terror and than, fear. Yeah. Um <laughs> but he also came from you know a a, a school that was was really w- ruled with an iron fist and helped to shepherd in the new you know I remember one day Chris Muller who's still the chef there is amazing mm-hmm. he would call me a jack job and that was my that was my name. I was like jack job. Jack job yeah. Dan, um, Dan's a jack job, yeah. And then one day I remember Eric being like we will no longer call him a jack job. I was like this is incredible. <laughs> Apparently I didn't have to do any better to get praise. I just continued to be a jack job but I didn't uh I, I don't know deserve the moniker. Moniker? No, you I just want to use as many big words as possible because we're on the radio. Let's let's
1: continue with the French guy impression because you were for Jean-Louis Palandin.
0: Incredible chef, Jean-Louis Paladin.
1: He is an absolute legend in the game of like fine dining and French restaurants in New York City and in Washington, D.C., right? He had restaurants in both. He did
0: a couple of things that were spectacular. First of all, he came over from France and he was one of the first French chefs to appreciate and utilize American ingredients and say like, you know i'm going to use local ingredients in this french cuisine so before him it was celebration of the fact that you had white german asparagus that was canned asparagus in your restaurant because it was so hard to come by he said no 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 and he helped to teach a lot of people how to farm and how to fish um he you know dayboat scallop uh, day dayboat cod diver scallop from montauk um, he from montauk to maine you know he helped to kind of like teach people and he created a um, a market for by saying to farmers, you know, if you can grow this um, chef's toys, um, uh, he, you know, if you can grow this, I'll buy it. And so really was a driving force. He also sponsored the visas of a lot of chefs. I think Danielle Balloud, I think I know Eric, he sponsored their visa from France. So that was her, their first job in America um, was, was coming to work for him. So he was really, a larger-than-life character, really not a nutcase. Yeah,
1: so legendary, like the way he would write menus. We've, you have a lot of his menus still in your files, yeah. which are really cool.
0: Huge heart, huge temper. Um, he would pace back and forth and say, it's the end of the world, which is my favorite part. It's
1: the end of the world. It's the end of the world. The end of the fucking world.
0: That was his, like, that was his, you know. and And he would scream and shout and throw stuff. And I don't know. I responded really well to that. (laughs) I remember one day I had forgotten I I was making duck confit where you salt the duck and you kind of cure it and then you cook it in its own fat, under fat, slowly. Um, And I had left it on salt. So it's supposed to salt for like 12 hours. And I left the restaurant and I forgot. He also smoked Marlboro Reds on the line. It was a thing. Um, and I forgot the duck, so I came back to the restaurant. I had a couple of drinks. I was young, like maybe 7, 19 or something. Came back to the restaurant, and I was sneaking in to take the duck off the salt. And who's there at 2 o'clock in the morning um, walks in while I'm, like, washing the duck off, but Jean-Louis. And I just about pooped my pants. <laughs> and he goes, what are you doing? I was like, you know explained to him came clean only choice and he took one of the duck legs i think he might have been inebriated and he took a giant bite of the thing raw duck chewed it up spit it out and goes "It's sees him perfectly go home i was like (laughs) god bless you know the united states of america America.
1: god what great stories and i i i think your career is so interesting to me and when we write about food i think a lot of our columns and just in general when we write like you you recall these these stories that you tell so coolly so let's go to san francisco oof let's get to that dan Holzman world because you you worked in some pretty iconic places up there um you're rising in the ranks you you became cdc chef de cuisine and like the head the head dude at a couple places so what was that like
0: a little bit san Fr- so i moved from I moved from Vegas to LA. I worked in, I tried to get out of the restaurant business. It didn't work out terribly well for me. Um, restaurants like a pirate ship yeah. and the type of personality that works well in, in that kind of, you know, I don't know. It just, I, I, I'm not fit for regular. I don't know what the, what the word for it is. Office life, office life, nine to fiver. Yeah. Um, And so, I called Eric and I said, I'm thinking about going to work in, a, in, in restaurants again. And he said, if I were going to start over, if I had the choice, I would live in San Francisco. Best produce, best connection to farmers. and This is Eric Repair's Eric advice repair. to you, yeah. And he said, I, I, I've got a guy um, who you should go work for. He's got the best um, best food, you know, wonderful technique, delicious, delicious food. Um, uh, uh, Laurent Monrique, who's still up there. Um, and I worked, I went up to work for him. He was the chef at the Campton place at the time, right before Daniel Hume came in, um, after Bradley Ogden, I think. And, um, I went and worked for this guy and he, he's this passionate cook. One of the best cooks I've ever worked with. Really. I learned so much about just cooking with your heart, I guess, from, from working with him. And, Nate Appleman was a was a cook at the time, and we became very close friends. Uh, there was a, um, a guy named Chris that later on went to Open A16 that then Nate took over for, which is a really kind of like seminal Italian pizza pasta place with southern Italian wine that's really elevated and brought that pizza pasta concept to the next level, um, and regional Italian food. So I made some really great connections, actually really kind of Special time. And then I called after a year, I called Eric up and I said, you know, and he said, well, you know, there's one guy in San Francisco that's, that's cooking the best technique of anybody out there. This guy named Laurent Gras. He was this young, um, uh, uh, kind of like wonder Wonder kid kid. Yeah. He was a genius from. France, who had worked for, um, who's a super famous guy with all the Michelin stars, uh, Alan Ducasse. Yeah. Ducasse. And he was like the youngest three Michelin star chef. He was the chef of Alan Ducasse in Monaco. And he had such a funny story. Actually. I worked from. him. He did not have a great, he didn't have a huge sense of humor about his, about his <laughs> work. He was very serious about his work. Um, and his technique was absolutely impeccable. He was doing stuff that was so extraordinary and some of the most interesting individually delicious ingredients i've ever come across really really special um and stuff that you could ne- you know way 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 before his time he was sous vide short ribs and cooking them for you know 72 hours uh so they were fully braised but medium rare um it's just cool stuff. Really influential. Does it bum you out that we don't know in food media in
1: 2019 the Laurents? We don't know Laurent Monrique, Laurent Gras. We don't talk about Jean Louis Pelland. These are names that are so important to cooking, but ultimately they've been forgotten in many ways. I feel in this very quick moving culture.
0: Um, I don't, you know, so much know that any of them or anybody else should care uh, from a, like from their ego perspective. But certainly there was a lot to learn and a lot going on in that time, a lot of experimentation with food that I think is being reinvented now and rediscovered now. And maybe some credit is going to folks for for cooking food in a way that has been cooked before, Um, which is what it is. But, you know, there's something about the, and we've talked about this a lot, Mm -hmm. about the old apprenticeship system where cooks, you know, and I think- I, I I saw Jacques. Pippin. Oh, you were with me. Yeah, that was amazing. At yeah. Mad,
1: at Mad in Copenhagen. Yeah, Jacques
0: Pepin talked about you know the apprenticeship system and and in order to be uh uh to learn a craft, it's however many thousand hours of 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 work, an apprenticeship and practice and craftsmanship becomes before artist artistry, and that was really well said. And it's a little bit lost, and so folks that don't have a full blown grasp of you know the of the of the of the craft are discovering stuff that's like might m- that other people might have you know and taking maybe credit for, and even the press might be giving credit for stuff that might not really be a, a new thing.
1: Yeah, I yeah, it's a it's a tough situation, old versus new, and the changing d- dynamics and generations.
0: Evolution yeah. isn't something that we're going to fight against. You know, we're not yep. gonna, we're not going to win that one.
1: Really. Really? The turtles s- are not coming back. People. Sage of you. Forget your straw. We went there.
0: Dan. Use your straw, people. The turtles ain't coming back. <laughs> okay. Galapagos, I'm coming. Imagine the size of straws you could carve from a Galapagos turtle shell.
1: <laughs> Let's go back to New York because after San Francisco, you ended up back in New York. Tortoise shell, sorry, Tortoise. We, you ended up back in New York, but you um, you kind of changed roles a bit. You you went from being a, an op, a chef working the line to actually uh, being a business owner. And I and I really want to ask you this question because I've I've wondered. I don't think I've ever asked you this. Like you and your partner Mike really really succeeded with this concept meatballs that honestly were fucking there, hiding in plain sight. Like meatballs. Like we know that New York City has a robust a little Italy. Um, you know Italian meatballs. Like who everyone knows meatballs. SpaghettiOs, but like no one had really innovated the meatball in a restaurant and built a restaurant around it. So, like, tell me, like, why did that work so well?
0: Well. I've done a lot of media training on this subject. (laughs) Because we're we're all about the media trained uh, response in the Taste Podcast. I I just remember like Phil Baltz and Sarah Abel (laughs) who are the publicists of the meatball shop and and, and absolutely excellent people who are, you know, really talented saying like, you're going to tell people that, you know, you're going to elevate and give a pedestal to meatballs and put them on the same platform that pizza and burgers (laughs) have had for years. And the single restaurant concept isn't something you've invented, but you're elevating. Um, Oh, my God. You just used radio
1: announcer voice. So let's. Actually cut the bullshit.
0: So I think that we got really lucky because it was an economic downturn. A lot. There were not a lot of restaurants opening. And... What year is this? This is 2010. February of 2010, we opened. two thousand uh, February 9th, 2010. We took the lease right before Thanksgiving. We... I don't know if, is this illegal to say? I don't even know if i get in trouble for this. Nothing's illegal to say. This is America. It's a safe place. But but when you admit something you've done that's illegal, I don't know if you get in trouble for it. We built the restaurant without the permits at all, but then we had applied for permits, and then the day that we were ready to open the restaurant, the permits showed up, and I was like, (gasps) I was, you know, really nervous. But it worked out. No one got hurt, thankfully. Is
1: that, should people follow that? Absolutely not. You should not do that
0: there's huge liability big 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 stake but you don't really know what you can lose when you don't have anything to lose until you you know realize oh i could have lost a lot yeah (laughs) that would have been terrible um
1: so let's uh you open on the lower east side in 2010 you open the meatball stock so what i was saying is that
0: it was an economic downturn sorry am i talking too much i love you are interviewing me
1: is that okay i'm interviewing you dan we're going, I, we're going long. I
0: think I drank Phil's coffee, which is a lot, of, it's got a lot of energy. Very delicious. Yeah. Only drip, none of that. It's good stuff. Phil's is system. great. So it was an economic downturn. So not a lot of restaurants were opening. And then we wanted to have a really inexpensive, fairly priced restaurant. I felt like it was, I felt like I was cooking for people that my friends and family couldn't afford to eat in the restaurants that I was cooking. And I felt, strange charging $24 at the time. Now it seems reasonable to spell 20 to charge $20 for a bowl of pasta at the time. It seemed really kind of rude. And so w- this whole idea of like, we're going to open a casual restaurant where we serve the same quality food using the same ingredients for a fraction of the price, drive volume, make a place to work. That's a fun place to work, even though it's got good food. It, we, it really resonated. And, and the press didn't have a lot to talk about. And I feel like the story of two best friends opening a restaurant together is something that people can get behind. I think many of us over the years have talked with our best friend about having a business together. And so that was something that people got excited about and they talked about it. And cause nothing else was opening, they kept on talking about it. And cause the news cycle was fairly bleak. We were, mm-hmm. you know, something that people got and it, and it really resonated it was awesome yeah
1: you had you had lines i remember in the first couple months and people really and you started opening more locations
0: we really we really struck while the iron's hot we uh-huh. struck ourselves in the face with the iron that was is that a cooking metaphor Or is that more like an industry metaphor like like a striking ste- while the iron's yeah. hot. yeah um, I think that it's an, I've always thought it was an ironing metaphor. Like you press your pants, like you, you don't want to, your pants won't get unwrinkled unless you, oh. I, that's what I thought, but I, I'm sure I'm wrong.
1: I think of like Billy Joel Allentown, like the, like banging of metal, like, like smelting. It's know? impossible
0: for me to hear somebody speak the word Billy Joel and Allentown, not, woo. <laughs> Bottle of I love red, that song. Bottle wine. No, no. I uh, so back to the
1: Italian that's restaurant. That's not my
0: karaoke song, but it could be. <laughs>
1: back to the Italian restaurant. So you're opening lots of locations. You're you're expanding, and and tell me what, what's the what, what's the story? How how has the story evolved?
0: So you know, we had a lot of chutzpah. Chutzpah. It's oh, a yes. Yiddish word. I think it means moxie, um, uh, which is a Yiddish word which means chutzpah. <laughs> um, we we definitely moved. Luckily, I think we moved faster than we were. We knew how we, we had confidence beyond our actual scope of our real knowledge and ability, but um, we we opened the restaurants and people came and they were successful. And, you know, as we opened about one a year, um, which folks were telling us we were moving fast enough. It's weird. In, when you're, when you're looking forward, it feels really fast. It's kind of like when you're, I don't know if you've ever jumped off a, off a cliff into the water. When you look from the top, it looks really tall. And then when you get down there, you're like, ah, eh, it wasn't that bad. Well, it feels really like you're on a big wave when you're, when you're, when you're opening the restaurants. Um, and we, the business evolved really quickly because it's constantly changing as it's growing. We had a lot of um, the restaurant community is extremely kind and wonderful. Like we had tons of great advice from people. I mean, I don't know another industry where people from other restaurants, com- not competing, but other restaurants just came and just gave us tons of advice. I mean, like real big wigs. Give the names. Cause we should shout it out. Um, Richard Corain from union square hospitality would sit down with us and give us just, you know, was a, was a real mentor. We would not have been able to do it without him. Um, we met with uh, 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 Ron Sage from Panera Bread, who was like just sat down with us and gave us tons of kind of like his time, and was somebody that was available by phone for us to you know run questions by. Um, we we the the guy that started Panquettiers sat down oh, with us. Um, his name was Laurent. Laurent, um, and he. Um, he was really, really helpful. And, you know, what was interesting is all these people that really, really know, you know, you can't argue, you can't open a restaurant and, and, and assume you're going to know more than someone that has thousands of restaurants ever. Otherwise you're an idiot. Um, hopefully I'm not a complete idiot. So what we did was there were a lot of things that all these guys agreed on. And if everybody agreed on something, we did it. We were like, we don't mess with that. And then when they disagreed, you realize, oh, like you know, for instance, the expansion, somebody says, you know, the guy from Cheesecake Factory was another one that started Cheesecake Factory. He said, you know, look like, you know, you can either grow in concentric circles or you can open one in New York and one in San Francisco, then one in Texas. And which is the best way to do it? All those guys argued over that. And we thought, well, if everybody's arguing over that, then there's no best way. It's whatever fits best for us.
1: The Cheesecake Factory guy, did he um, give you free cheesecake?
0: Absolutely not. But can I tell you that? Have you you had that cheesecake? It's very delicious. I've been to the
1: mall. Yes, I've had that. It's
0: very delicious. And, you know, one thing that working in fancy restaurants, I was a little bit of a snob about chain restaurants. Oh, really? And I didn't appreciate how much harder it is to have multiple consistent, good quality restaurants than it is to have one. One restaurant, good quality, requires one great manager passionately overseeing it. Multiple restaurants require brains and operational ability and all kinds of other you know it's it's tough
1: so meatball shop has gone on to open in in washington dc and it's it's thriving absolutely thriving i want to ask you about um, another project you're working on oh my gosh uh, in san francisco in oakland um with kyle atani of hopscotch love kyle um you guys uh, run uh, a Tani Ramen. Kyle runs a day to day, and you're part of the project. Like, what got you involved with ramen, and where where do you want to see this go? I just think it's such a cool idea.
0: So I'm a, a silent partner in a restaurant called <laughs> Tani Ramen, which means that I um which means that I um am not uh, uh, officially involved in any capacity other than um uh, silently and not telling anybody about it. However, in real life. Kyle and I are, uh, Kyle, uh, um, before he opened his first restaurant, Hopscotch, which is an awesome oh, restaurant so in, in Oakland.
1: It. It's innovative. It's a magical place.
0: His, his then-fiancé, now wife and mother of his beautiful daughter, was going to school in New York, master's degree. She's a genius, actually. She's amazing. Um, and he had some time between jobs and came and, and helped us open a restaurant in New York. He was friends with the executive chef of the meatball shop, Daniel Sharp. And subsequently we've become really close friends. We've traveled to Japan together a couple of times, you know, we've done lots of food festivals together and we've just really enjoyed working together. He came to me and said, I want to do a second restaurant. And, you know, I said, listen, whenever we've gone to Japan, you've been so passionate about ramen. You love ramen. He loved the idea that, so much of Jap- in Japan is so structured, and there's so much formality around everything um, that you know you, that 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 uh, 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 people don't have an ability to really express themselves artistically that that freely. But because ramen isn't traditionally Japanese, it's Chinese. There's tons of room for artistic kind of freedom um, outside of the cultural constraints, uh, um, and so you see in every prefecture. Around Japan, people opening ramen restaurants that are unique and special, and highlighting in- ingredients. And there's a lot of evolution going kind to of happen quickly. And I was like, you know, that's a unique perspective. We th- in America, like, I didn't know ramen was anything other than like this tonkatsu thick yeah. pork broth. Like, I yeah. didn't realize it. <clears throat> now, you know, like, look, Lucky Peach's first um art, you know, first uh, uh, issue uh, yeah. issue was like all the ramen. So now we know that, but at the time it was it was really special. And I was learning so much from him that I said, I think you should open a ramen restaurant. And so, um, uh, he, he put an incredible plan together and a menu and it's been evolving. And yeah. there's, izakaya, uh, there's an izakaya. I, even it's so amazing. Like at the time we were talking about izakaya, we're like how are people going to yeah. call it? Cause no one knows what that is. Now it's like, everybody Oh yeah. Understands. It's vernacular like, now. Yeah. Tapas, gastropub, Japanese yeah. style. Great. Yeah, yeah, Um, and that restaurant has been doing really, really, really well. It's so nice to watch it. And I was up there a few weeks ago, and the food is better than it's ever been.
1: Yeah, I was there in November, and I had a really, really great... I think I had a you broth. Oh, I don't shoyu. think I had any of the tonkatsu. Wait, does he do
0: tonkatsu? Yeah, he's, so the menu basically has... It does have a rich pork broth, like you know tonkatsu, yeah. and then he's got a shio, a shoyu, you know, like a salt and a soy. Yeah. Um. And then he's got a couple of vegetarians. He's got a buttered mushroom. Yeah, that's um, And there's something about making a, a a a vegetarian broth have the weight of ramen that requires a level of, you know, who does it really? Have you had that vegan ramen hood? The vegan. Yeah, ramen Hood. I think absolutely. I Sorry. think it's absolutely. Yeah, excellent. At the Grand Central. Murphy Elon here Hall in LA. is like. I think he's a gr- a really good human being and a lovely yeah, person. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And uh and I think his food's excellent. Yeah. I think it's great.
1: Yeah, Robin Hood's cool. Yeah. I love it. I want a cool name. You no, know, come on. Like shout out.
0: I mean not that the Gorbels What is <laughs> what what does the Gorbels even mean? <laughs> I mean Robin Hood Elon Gorbels. Yeah. You are really you're you're Robin from the rich and you're given... Were you part. ever on that show that he did? Yes, knife fight. Or, I lost. You were Some on. on Night, are... You lost the knife fight. I've lost at every competition show I've ever. Yeah, been which on.
1: ones have you done? You done? A few
0: I don't. I've done beat Bobby Flay. Um, so be, done, but, So Bobby Flay beat your ass. No, I lost in the first round to a chef, uh, uh, an Indian woman, Palak, mm-hmm. um Patel, I believe, mm-hmm. who, who's awesome and she was really talented. and Then she went on to beat Bobby Flay. Oh, good. And she's also like couldn't be more sweet and. It was fun. So you lost on that. You lost on I've nice lost on, uh, I've not, I'm not, I'm not a fast cook. I'm just not, I'm not into like, if you tell me, make the best thing you can make in 15 minutes, I'm like, I'd rather take 30 minutes and make the best thing I can make in as much time as I got. Like, it just isn't my style. And, you know, also my problem, I think is that one bite, the judges take one bite and I cook for a whole plate, not one big Sounds flavorful like,
1: bite that sounds like the words of a guy who lost twice on competition show. yeah
0: yeah, i got a lot of, basically i just lost quotes. you
1: basically yeah uh, <laughs> the other reason that i lost <laughs> gave my other excuse your food <laughs> um
0: i didn't season the, the you uh, lost the aubergine scallops. i didn't season the aubergine oh yeah well, that's uh that's that's european for um eggplant, for eggplant.
1: Um I want to know okay we're in LA now we talked about your move here Oof. I mean what are you what are you doing here are you gonna are you gonna maybe
0: jump back in smoke lots of pot do some surfing bro Yeah man I was thinking do about some... finger painting as a new <laughs> <laughs> like finger painting clinic and reiki Oh that's cool reiki's great Yeah no should, yeah, yeah. Also, have you seen Elephant's Paint before? Because it's a real thing and you should look it up on YouTube. I've been spending a lot of time on the YouTube rabbit hole (laughs) watching Elephant's Paint. Uh, In real life, I want to open a restaurant. Um, And I didn't know if I wanted to open a restaurant. But working at the meatball shop really did evolve into more of a management um, job. And I challenged myself to be an executive, which I don't think I am naturally suited to. But I do feel like... I learned a lot uh, about and I have a great deal of respect for the understanding of bureaucracy and the fact that bureaucracy doesn't necessarily have to be a bad word. It can mean, you know, if you set up a bureaucracy to drive um, the uh, a, a, a culture and an environment that that is positive, then it can do wonderful things. And also bureaucracies would stop in the people that aren't necessarily uh, great at thinking on their feet from, you know, crashing their cars um all the time into you killing you so thankfully so that was amazing but i i would really love to get behind the stove i've been going to the farmer's market i've been cooking a lot yeah los angeles is not known for having the best vegetables in america but when you go to the farmer's market it's the it's the best farmer's market in america
1: the best farms
0: it just it's just you know, there's something about the, the the freeway access, I guess, makes it so that you can from from Central California you're talking about? Yeah, yeah like yeah, you cool. can go it's the San Francisco farmers market is absolutely spectacular. You have
1: fucking sun here, you man.
0: Know? You have a lot of sun and you have an ocean with cool it's just this food is food. where like twenty percent of the food in America gets grown. Yeah. And you know, for a great example is like I bought radishes at the farmers market last Wednesday so they're 10 days old I don't know if you ever bought radishes in a supermarket in New York but like they last three days and they get soggy I pulled one out of my fridge today and it's crispy as can be because a radish's shelf life is actually probably like 14 days we have never seen it but I've never seen a radish that was one day old you know the vegetables really are extraordinary here we
1: ask everyone on the taste podcast um what Dan Holzman is your dream cookbook project
0: my dream cookbook project would be, um, in real life, I would like to go with my friend Matt Rodbard on the, um, on the uh, uh, Siberian Express, mm-hmm. Trans-Siberian Express, from uh, Moscow to Beijing, and I'd like to get off at every uh, stop that, that makes sense for us to get off at, and I'd love to cook with a grandma on every single stop and document a recipe from 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 that region um i think that would be very cool and then i looked up and in true like russian crazy bureaucratic uh, if you get off the trans-siberian express you can't get on the next one without a (laughs) ticket and you have to book your ticket from that stop to the the to, to your terminus stop and like if you don't get on that specific train you're just out there. So you could, like, get off in, like, you know, Kazakhstan. I don't even know where that is, but I imagine it's yeah. cold. And you're just, like, S-O-L. They don't let yeah. you back on that train. Period. If, uh, but we're going to go Gonzo
1: train. style. We're just going to, like, make it work.
0: Yeah, I don't think you make it work in Russia. I think you get buried. Yeah. I, think you, I, think,
1: I think you turn into to mulch. This, uh, this outline is really kind of coming together right now that we have. Like, but
0: isn't that a cool idea?
1: I love that idea. We've talked about yeah. some travel books.
0: We talked about doing... Um, uh, uh, doing China, yeah, because there's just so much, you know, yeah. regional China. There's so much out there that hasn't been explored. There's so much great cuisine in the world. Yeah, the 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 Caucasus. Yeah, I know. I'm the, a big guy for the Caucasus. Yeah, it's cool stuff. Get into it. There's so much great food.
1: I know. And How undiscovered about like
0: Chile. The Chinese influence of 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 oh, Chile. like Chilean food, and you know, that's cool.
1: I'm into these ideas, Daniel Holzman.
0: Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. I want to thank you for coming all the way out to Los Angeles and being here with me today.
2: Here's Matt talking to Ted and Matt Lee.
1: Matt Lee, Ted Lee. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast.
2: Oh man, we're Thanks so excited for to be us, here. Matt.
1: It's so great to see you guys. I Usually see you in Charleston. I usually see you down there.
2: <laughs> we're usually like gnawing on a drumstick or something or <laughs> shrimp tail.
1: I love it. But let's talk about catering. This book Hot Box is really cool because you you've done the done the Bill Buford Heat thing before for catering. I mean yeah.
3: thank you for mentioning that that was sort of a, a a guiding um text you know it was a comparative title that we always
1: thought about and uh, and Ted let me I wanted to ask you you know catering it's it's this 12 billion dollar business annually mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but we we as food writers and the food media we don't talk about it that often and I wanted to yeah. know how does it affect our lives in these unique ways
3: well i mean the first thing to understand is catering you know, big C catering is everywhere. It's like you know, it's it's corporate cafeteria is. It's it's the kind of catering that we did um, goes by the name of off premise catering or special events catering, and it's kind of a different ball of wax because it's all about delivering food to venues that aren't that don't have kitchens. So it's like adding a, a food service function in spaces where a kitchen doesn't exist. So there's no running water, typically. There's no electricity. There's no HVAC. And you have to move the kitchen with you. Um, so, I mean, how does catering interact with people's lives in so many ways? But if you've ever been to a bat mitzvah, quinceanera, um, you know, wedding. Any, a wedding, <laughs> you know, there's there's so many ways in which if you've ever been to a celebration, a party, where there's been catered food, it's... The slang
2: term uh, some people use inside the industry is meals on wheels. Um, It's like it's simply that that idea that food moves from place to place. Um, Once you do that, a lot of weird things happen to destabilize the quality, uh, the potential quality of the food that's being received on the other end. Um, And it wasn't until we embedded in this system, especially in New York City, where the stakes are just that much higher and the conditions are that much worse that we realized what we had here i mean it's a subculture a large one hiding in plain sight from us.
1: i mean it created it creates great drama i mean we're talking about bringing food for between 500 and or 50 and 1700 to weird spaces that you would unexpected that are unexpected
3: with the people we were working with every night for them a small party is 350 so that's small. And the, the spaces we're
1: talking and a
3: large party is 12
2: The spaces we're talking about just to try to create an image are um, Uh, The Temple of Dendur is the classic one and one of the earlier ones um, that was attempted in the um, early 70s in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It's just a museum gallery, um, you know, a dusty old museum. Like there's nothing going on in there. So if you're bringing a kitchen there, you're setting up in a loading dock or behind a curtain in a hallway. Um, And uh, what are some other classic venues? The Javits Center. It's like a cement slab. You know, yeah. and it's cold and, and it's
3: <laughs> and it's an airplane hanger, basically. And then you have to move within that. You have to move. You have to construct your kitchen. You write
1: about pipe and drape, which is a bit the, yes. kind of the vernacular of the kitchen of the catering. Exactly. Kitchen, the right? pipe
3: and drape is that thing that shields the kitchen from the floor of the party. Um, and there are all these layers of invisibility in catering. And it's part of why
2: people just don't really know about it um, mm-hmm. unless they've worked in it. Um, and it's why we were really uh, keen on telling the tale, um, because it's so shrouded.
1: And Matt, tell me, I, I, I we hear the word catering, and mm-hmm. you—it's a pejorative term. The yeah. food is mm-hmm. considered rubber chicken. Is this your opinion at the end of all of this reporting, or is there something else to the story about the quality of the food?
2: Um, absolutely not. I mean, that is the the sort of classic instinctual th- thing. I mean, we had that same feeling initially. Um, You know, how can the quality not suffer if you're serving 1,700 people in a grassy field? Um, but what we discovered is that the people um, who dwell in this world are, you know, hyper-skilled, hyper-specialized because they have to be. If you aren't, you get stripped from the system pretty cleanly um, and pretty quickly. Um, it's just uh, incredible, the strategies, um, the vocabulary, the tools um, – uh, the food torture, we call it, <laughs> that they do. It's so different from restaurant world and from home cooking. Mm-hmm. Just
1: entirely different. And Ted, give us some examples of the, some of the dishes that we You know,
3: be... at the level of catering that we're doing, pretty much every past appetizer has, like, at least four or five or six <gasps> or even seven elements. So it's yeah. it's really, you know, it's like um, curried chicken papadum with curry leaf, you know. Orange and you know, achiote. Achiote. Yeah. It's like, like, and there's... 13 past apps. Yeah. And so there's seven elements to each one of those past apps. So it's not, you know, it's, there's a lot going on um, and there's a lot to, you know, pay attention to. I will say that, you know, in a, the larger the party, the more um, sort of conventional the proteins. Um, the ones that are super popular in the New York area are short rib and lamb shank. Because they hold brilliantly, mm. right? In fact, they improve with yeah, a little they, age they kind on them in, in the cooler, mm-hmm, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Um, uh, so a typical a, a typical seated plated dinner would be like short rib, br- short rib with some kind of spatzel and some kind of vegetable, and um, mm-hmm. and usually a green like winter greens or something. A sauce and a garnish, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and a sauce and a garnish.
2: Um, but like, think of it: um, the restaurant chef is in her own like space, like her, her station all tricked out that got the mise en place has spent, you know, four, three hours, like prepping that. Mm-hmm. And it's the same from night to night. So it's a comfort zone mm-hmm. from night to night. A catering chef might not have ever seen the kitchen that they're going to be setting up in um, and inevitably is handing the plates, the perfect plates that you planned out nine
1: months ago to uh, a stranger and in enters the hot box, which is your title of your book. And also mm-hmm. you, you trace the history of this, of this piece of machinery that has revolutionized the way uh, catering works. Explain what a hot box does and is and how it is the lifeblood of a catering kitchen. So
3: a hot box is what a lot of people across the country call a transport cabinet. It's the aluminum, about five and a half feet tall, on casters, aluminum cabinet that transports sheet pans of food you know, from one end of the kitchen to the other or some such. That's it.
2: And what we discovered um, delving into the history is that back in the 1970s, this uh, French chef, Jean-Claude Nedelec, was uh, a um, banquet Banquet. chef at the Plaza Hotel. He hacked this transport cabinet um, by inserting a couple sheet pans with just a cluster of sternos on them, Mm, you know, that mm -hmm. alcohol gel fuel. Um, He could put a few of those in there intermixed among the salmon fillets and he could commendably like cook like turn this thing into an oven
3: yeah
2: um the problem is i guess is that there's no temperature gauge so you have to have pure wits and experience you have to have logged thousands of hours touching this thing to know how to do it right um and uh, to crack the door open a little bit to admit oxygen but not so far that it loses heat i mean it's an insanely analog system It's like flying a hot air balloon Mm -hmm. compared to like driving a plane. Um, and it's still being used today. <laughs> yeah, it turns out to be insanely flexible.
3: You know, it, it does it does function as a warming oven, principally because most of the food is par cooked. You know, your proteins get seared at back at the, the you production get the color kitchen. color back.
1: Yeah. yeah, and like that's the, that's the story right there of how you actually use a hot box to cook mm-hmm. because it's like you have to par cook at a certain temperature. If you go over in your par cooking, you're going to have rubber. Right. But if you exactly. go under, you're going to have raw, and that's yeah. obviously very unsafe. So, and the other thing
3: you- to consider is that, um, you know, Matt was mentioning the restaurant chef with her mise en place. Most of the fiesta shift, like the party shift cooks who come in on the party they're receiving a mise en place that's been created for them by back other cooks. and they're unpack you know their first job is to unpack all the coolers and dry packs and all that kind of stuff there's this disconnect between the prep kitchen and the fiesta kitchen that so just, you know fiesta. what happens if you you open that thing of a mint and it's all like you know slime it's like what do you do and you're like you, on an island yeah, you're literally yeah, yeah. on you're, liberty you're island you're literally yeah. on liberty island or you're out in the hamptons or whatever
1: yeah,
2: yeah there's rarely cha- the chance for a rerun which is that kind of like we fudged it that did
1: you ever get, did you ever see that though, like a run out to like the sea town? All the time. Yes. Dude. Oh, my God.
3: And, and you know, and what's cool is that in the Hamptons you might be able to go to a farmer's market, but also you have to remember in the Hamptons, the traffic on weekends is insane. And so that rerun could take you a two hour round trip, which you might have if you got there on time, but you're again, you're going out to the Hamptons on the weekends, so it's you're always running late, you're always behind the eight ball, so One important takeaway
2: we got as home because we are home cooks, you know, our written several are are written from a home cook's perspective. We've never worked in restaurants. Um, But uh, what we have what the result of this research has done for our home kitchen practice is that we've just gotten much more comfortable doing a lot of prep. Even one, two days ahead of time and just being, you know, happy with that um, burnished, you know, protein sitting in the fridge mm-hmm. and then just and think about what it does to, um, you know, the the to- the day that you have your dinner party. It just makes you so much more relaxed. You're
3: not schwitzing into the no. sauce. Um, it's just a and, lot And nicer. your guests don't see you sweating and laboring because and, they don't want to. They don't want to see you work. They want no, to spend it, time with you. It's the
1: it's the sign of a great host when the host is is present. Yeah, and then mm. out, the out pops his meal. It's like three courses effortlessly. I want to hear about stress and chaos and war stories. And I guess Ted, give give an example of 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 a really bad scene that went played out that you
3: witnessed. Oh my gosh, uh, this is this is a classic one. I mean, this the. NBA Legends brunch for 1,400 people at the Javits Center.
1: Including NBA Legends.
3: Yes, yeah. And, I mean, mind you, this is, it was a buffet. So, you know, the kitchen never spends time on the floor. So whoever the celebrities are out there, unless there's a tasting station, we (laughs) didn't see them. But behind the scenes, you know, our call time was 5.30 a.m. It was freezing cold that morning. Um, And I watched, one of the guys in sanitation had the, the, um, again, it's 1,400 people. And that was one where I was like, My head chef, my lead chef. I was throwing down my backpack, my coat, hanging up my coat on thing. I was like, "Chef, should I bring my, should I bring my um, knife kit?" And he's like, "I don't know. Is one of them a shovel? You know?" Because it was like we were just getting the volume. The volume of food was so insane. Bring your shovel. So there was this guy on the sanitation team who was somehow charged with rolling um, six glassware racks full of yogurt parfaits. It's brunch, like yogurt parfaits down the hall of the david center and i'm looking at it and there's like an electrical cable running across and he thinks this thing is gonna jump the cable it doesn't it stops short and you're watching six you know it's like you know three foot four foot tall just go there might have been <laughs> 700 parfaits i mean that. seven or eight hundred parfaits and lost all in the space of and glass and that wasn't even our kitchen team that was the sanitation guy <laughs> it was so funny here's the thing about but, these
2: events is um that you in- instinctually know, but but let me remind you, hovering over most catered events is this expectation that everyone be served at the same time, no matter how big the event is, within about 10 or 15 minutes. Because if one side of the party sees that the other side of the party is already finishing up their entree before they dig in, like a riot's going to break out, a mutiny. Um, and uh, and so you, it, the demand peak is like... Just a spike, whereas at a restaurant it's spread out a little bit more genially. Of course, there's a rush um, at 8 p.m. or whatever, but it's more like a bell and little curve. things you can
1: do as like a front of house manager to like uh, yeah.
2: Well, and everyone's not ordering the same thing. Yes, you see, um, there's also inevitably like this idea that everyone's being served the identical plate or maybe one of two options, um, but still like the stresses that that puts on the kitchen are insane.
3: Ted brides grooms oh man zilla it's we, it's we talk about it it's is it real it, it is kind of real um in in our work i mean again it's kitchen work i mean think about it this way there were very few weddings i work where anyone in the kitchen knew the name of the bride and groom other than me because i was you know i was writing a book about it and so for me it was like a piece of information but Most times, like, the kitchen team doesn't know who the bride and groom is. They only know who the party planner is because that's the person you're trying to please. That's the repeat business. And so they'll know who the party planner is and when the party planner is in the kitchen, but the bride and groom never come into the kitchen. Mm -hmm. That being said, there's, you know, I worked a really intense, really lavish, um, extravagant wedding um, where the groom ordered a special meal, and it was uh, grilled chicken breast. And like, you know, in the context of like a beautiful meal that you're preparing for these people, and you've you know you've got thirteen past apps, and this you know it's so beautiful. There, there, there is a way in which that weighs heavy. You know, it's like oh, actually, to this person, that this whole party's about. Like, the food is neither here nor there. You know, We,
2: we have a whole weddings chapter in this book, and um. And what we noticed is that that stylistically there have been some trends in weddings in the menu selection, and it used to be, let's say, around the the two thousand early two thousands, that uh, what brides and grooms really wanted was a, a wedding that reflected tradition and kind of you know the fairy tale wedding, and then uh, at a certain point, probably around the two thousand eight crash. Um, the uber-rich people who, for whom that was not necessarily a crash at all, um, raised the ante because caterers wanted to appease them and appeal to them. They, they had to. And
3: they needed to say yes to, to get the business.
2: They had to say yes to every whim. And so suddenly the idea of a hyper-personalized wedding where every single element, every single dish, every single food or beverage moment told a story about you meeting your you know, spouse um, – mm-hmm. And became entrenched and so suddenly now it's like the tale that's never been told you know uh rich and lisa's wedding um and um so these contortionist like um from the the catering standpoint contortionist experiences are just incredible and so you'll see the most gluttonous wedding ever with just like thousands and thousands of pounds and millions of dollars worth of food and you know
1: Half of it goes in the trash. I know. That's the key. And I think you write about this in in the wedding chapter. You write about how Instagram is going to be about the the bride's dress. It's going to be about the DJ. It's going to be about the dances. It's going to be about the speeches. But when is the food ever grammed? or talked about
3: yeah and uh, and there is you know i think the the rise the customization of menus sort of coincided with that rise of instagram so there is pressure sometimes there is pressure on their food there's pressure on every element to be like just so extraordinary so special that everyone like you know hits like on their phone when they see the the photo but um you know there are so many weddings for which the food may not be a big element, even though they're sp- maybe spending three hundred thousand dollars on it. No, of you know? course,
1: and like you're spending and all this time and effort, and, and we're just, spending is a all this time
3: and effort. But it's so clear, like the one I was telling you, like if the groom is not into it, yeah. why are we going through yeah. the motions? Like, why wouldn't they do? Like, I mean, I, 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 I to me, it's like. It's a missed opportunity. It's like, why not do a whole wedding where the whole point was like grilled chicken? You know, that would be that
2: would yeah, be like yeah, the wet. Yeah. Tell that like, story. Tell that story. Almost nothing else. That's a story that's never been told People
1: are basic. Like, <laughs> they have basic tastes, and they don't. They're not creative. They, they want. They but money money's going to. But it's solve just funny it. to
3: me as someone who you know, like, wh- why if grilled chicken was your comfort zone, would you then do like a. a a cocktail hour with literally at this event i think there was like 13 or 16 different um past items and and stationed items and there was a whole like noodles bar and the sushi bar and all this kind of stuff and it's like but why you know at a certain are point, we just checking off boxes yeah. i
2: mean if you're telling too many stories at you know any party whether it's a wedding or anything else like Your audience can't absorb all that. That's too much. Like, focus on one thing that really, you know, syncs up with your theme or your message and
1: let everything else kind of
2: be more like less comfort food.
1: I want to know, like, usually at weddings, there's, like, the food trucks roll up at the end of the night. Yeah. As the caterers, do you get, like, super bummed by, like, these food trucks rolling up and, like, that's the big finale and that's what people are talking about. It's like a taco truck. (laughs) And you spent, like— Hours on that past yeah. apps.
3: Well, the the two um, the two parties we worked that I I remember when food trucks rolled up, it was definitely dessert, and it was oh. definitely it was literally, it was literally probably the twenty fourth or twenty fifth item of dessert at that party. Okay, so like that was this at, the, was this was at the valet stand. I mean, that was at the valet stand. That was like the final piece that you got at the valet stand. And the funny thing for us is like we were like, who has who has an appetite for a belgian waffle after this party that was one year the <laughs> there was other year a was, sunday station and a you know a s'more station like, there was past desserts there, there was, was a whole pie a and cake Blastro bar. there was special cake a cake you know. boss g- cake in the shape of a shark it was like oh my god how could you put another bite in your mouth and yet you'd be surprised there was one there was one time we were doing, like, fried beignets to order. It was like, these people are not going to want a beignet it was after this it's meal. It's like thin beignet. And not only did they want the beignets, they wanted them hot. And so there was a point of service near the valet where you picked up your key and people were coming to us directly. We were, we were frying them right there, you know. you know, like twenty yards away, and they were coming to us. And they were like, "Oh yeah, those ones are cold. We want them hot."
1: Was that the Nancy Pelosi beignet yes. incident? Yes. yes, that was the Nancy Pelosi. It's beignet. a good reader. I'm not going to spoil our listener. I'm not going to spoil. It. You should read this book and find out about it. I do want to talk about Martha Stewart because you you yeah. catered an event. I believe it was at her was, house.
3: No, it wasn't at her house. It was at it was at a, um, a house in East Hampton. Okay, and um, but we did see her, and I was so freaked out because Matt and I wrote her wine column for five years. We've been on scene. her show. I mean, that's, you know, and I I didn't want to be busted. She's met a lot busted. of people in her life. Ted
2: had, you know, misplaced expectations that he'd be recognized.
3: <laughs> I had misplaced expectations. Um, Surprise, she didn't. Uh, and she didn't. And that was a, a moment where I was actually on the floor. I was manning the grill, mm-hmm. right? He was um, a hot dog so, tonger. He, yeah. yeah. And, and so she does I, like I, hot dogs. And I was within, you know... 10 feet maybe five feet of that station you know there was a point of service but i was the one sort of if anyone wanted something better more done than it was then i would take so but it's to your point it's like if you're in a catering uniform people don't see you the way they see you in other that that was a huge learning experience
2: what do you
1: mean by that well, well you're... for
2: one example, I served. I was also in a front-facing Fiesta station on the West Side Highway somewhere. It was like the launch of a, a you know, cruise ship concept kitchens or something, and they had media there and and the um, uh, a ton of people who like go on cruises all the time, and I served um, the uh, what was her title? She was the, the, the publisher of... the publisher of. Uh, the ma- magazine Travel and Leisure that we worked for, um, a you know bowl of soup or something. She looked me straight in the eye and did not see me because I was in context, yeah. clearly a catering worker. I had on a black pillbox beanie, an ill-fitting polyester chef's jacket, and you know stained black pants and smudged black clogs. And in, in if you're wearing that, you can walk into any building in Midtown mm-hmm. Manhattan without a security badge or showing your ID because it's it's obvious you are a catering a worker bad.
3: and so th- there is that thing it's like you're invisible but you have this special power you know that you have an mm-hmm. authority so that's understood simply by virtue of the outline of your you know mm-hmm. the like your silhouette your silhouette there's this authority but as far as humanity it's not always conferred you know and, and so that was what we i think we struggled with um, a lot and we still are, haven't resolved in our minds like how
1: working at as a catering chef as a caterer as a cook on the line who who, who are these so the
2: central american diaspora is very well entrenched um i think obviously as it is throughout food service in in new york and beyond um and that was actually the one ray of light you know a shred of humanity in this otherwise um, pretty brutal Cynical um, food, mm-hmm. food shoveling world um, but uh, there 's more interesting um, uh, breakdowns like between prep and fiesta so in the prep shift, um, that is more regular that 's more regular work it 's like you know Monday through Friday at sort of reasonable hours. And that tended to be both young and older people. So older people who um, had a family to go back to or a longer commute and younger people who wanted to be out at bars on the weekend. Because the Fiesta shift, that is an accordion business that's like, you might have three three gigs to choose from between Friday and Saturday mm-hmm. and none for the rest of the week. Um, and those are intense, like more improvisational skill sets. Um, so there's really different characters to different... Parts of the catering and, job, and
3: those, you know, the Fiesta shifts tend to be a little bit more mercenary in the sense that, like, since you need to fill your schedule, you you work with, you know, ten different caterers, uh, caterers sure. mm-hmm. and you just book accordingly, and you mm-hmm. try to fill your schedule with that.
1: Do you guys uh, screen party down? Yes. Oh, oh my yeah. God. That's one of my favorite I mean, when we started ever. this project,
3: we were searching for
2: something like this that told the story of how catering gets done and, and who the people are in it. And the only things we could find, the only sort of pop cultural references were Party mm-hmm. Down and Jane Lynch. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's strictly Cater Waiter. Yeah, you no, know, that's, that's exactly. Kind that's of kind of, kind a of thinking thing. the segue. So it's not really about the food. And that was,
3: that's the frustration is everyone's immediate thing is like, oh, like, oh, Party Down. And it's like, oh, yeah, but that's the service yeah. element. And the food is sim- – yeah. that is yeah. just skimming An the surface
2: thought. of it. Um, but then also Gabrielle Hamilton's um, Blood, Blood Bones and, Bones and Butter Blood has a chapter on it where she mostly like throws catering under the bus and claims to have hated it. What we heard from the catering world is that she was a brilliant caterer. Yeah, you know everyone it's remembers like
3: when she was in. It everyone and, wanted her on the shit on the on the party because she could do
1: anything. You know. Yeah, I mean, Danny Meyer has a very robust catering business, but other chefs have failed at it, right? I think what you yeah, talk about was it... Yeah. it, it, it was Bobby, Flay. Bobby, Bobby Flay. Flay right, yes. Bobby Flay, right, Bobby Flay. It was, like, it was the worst year worst, of my life. <laughs>
3: right. and, and part of that is, you know, it's just a different business, and it's a cutthroat business, and the part that enraged him more than anything was that, you know, the party planner would do a tasting with him and with you kind know, of an some other people, and, you know, and then Later and they they would think they slammed it, like crushed it, got it, we got that job. And then the party planner would circle back and say, Well, we've got them saying they can do the entree for, you know, 17 or, you know, or whatever. Can you cut the price can of the entree? Can you cut the price of the 25%? entree? And he'd be, he was like, You fucking kidding me? Like, I, you know, who when has, when have I ever had a customer say, I know, I know the hanger steak is 17, but can you do it for 13? Yeah. It just doesn't happen. So it's, it's a completely different.
2: And yet there are um, chefs like um, uh, Danielle Boulou, who's very successfully um, partnered with um, Feast and Fat. What's Um, the guy's name? Oh. Anyhow, it's, it's, it, to, you know, to create uh, a Jean, huge business sort of in I think parallel his name is
3: Jean-Christophe Le Yes,
2: exactly.
1: Oh, nice accent. And
3: yeah.
2: then um, someone like uh, Chef Anita Lowe, mm-hmm. um, who has really not gotten into catering, but she loves or at least tolerates working with the hot box. And and nowadays, chefs are pushed into this position ever so much more so of taking your act on the road, going to a festival, cooking off-site, popping up, doing a residency. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, the catering skills are becoming more relevant.
1: Let's talk about the next projects because I wanted to – you guys have done several cookbooks and you're known as cookbook authors. (laughs) Let's move on to that because I want to hear like what what book needs to be written by the Lee
3: brothers? What cookbook? Oh, gosh.
2: (laughs) Well, we're not sure that any needs to be. Okay. um, And that's the problem. Like we're in an era where, you know, are we just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic? Like, (laughs) you know, we have to get to more essential truths about food. Mm -hmm. Um, And so just slicing the southern cookbook pie thinner is not – what it's about
3: for us. But certainly from us, you know, like think about the Southern cookbooks that have come out in the last year. So amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, turnip greens and tortillas, um, coconuts and collard greens. Mm -hmm. um, Like those are voices that are coming out of the South that haven't been heard from really. And that's what excites us about the future. Like no one needs a fourth Lee Brothers cookbook. Like we've, we've metabolized Mm -hmm. what it's like to grow up in downtown Charleston in the 1980s. I mean, I wouldn't
2: say that we'd, we'd never do a cookbook because we love the process of developing recipes. Like, that really is something I think we do okay at. And um, and uh, we love that process of making cookbooks. Um, but maybe in the role of editors or something okay, like that. Okay, I see. So, so
1: th- but you still are keeping your eyes on food media, right? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. I
3: mean, abs- you know, we do this project um, with Rizzoli where we, um, it's called the Lee Brothers Classic Library, where we reissue. Out of print and vintage cookbooks. And that was a project that came sort of fell out of the sky in our laps. um, Thanks to an editor there. And, um, and that's really fun, like to really think about what are the books that we feel um, need to be brought back into print, because there may be a younger generation that's sort of missing the link between you know
1: yeah we've talked the, about a lot saying, here with taste I and mean, we've right, talked about yeah. the reissue mm-hmm. the paradigm i think from a business point of view it can be challenging to do reissues with rights and everything oh totally you know, oh and it's, and it's incredible it's, you have to go you know through 10 hurdles before you lots get lots of to hurdles step one. but yeah. what are some of the books that you've reissued through this kind of umbrella the
3: first one was um the one that we you know we were just aching to do it's um, princess pamela's soul food cookbook from 1969
2: and it's just it was mispublished in the first instance um physically because it was a crumbly acidified paperback. So most of the copies that exist now are not worth cooking from. And it was published as a tiny little thing so it was hard to cook from it because you couldn't open it without cracking the spine. Anyhow, we scaled it up, made it hardcover. It had to be redesigned. And um, and that was a fun process. And... Um, but uh, we Haley did Anderson feel like did there was, that.
3: you know, there was a lot of young chefs that we knew coming out of the South saying like, oh, look at my buttermilk pie, you know, and you taste it and you'd be like, yeah, yeah, I know. It seems like Princess Pamela maybe influenced you and they'd be like, oh, no, I, I worked for, but I worked at, um, you know, at at City Grocery or, you know, for John Curran's and, you know, the, the sort of you could follow the tutelage from Pamela Strobel to Bill Neal mm-hmm. to John Curran's. Or that generation, or Robert Stelling. um, You know, there were a lot of people who came through that. And you know, whether people carry on and give credit, like Bill Neal was scrupulous about, like giving credit to where his his sources were. But just to sort of close that gap and be like, here's the original. You know, Mm -hmm. here's an original from from the sixties. It's also cool work, just as you know to to do
2: the to write that new introduction and to you know process a little bit more about the book and to provide more context, more biography, and to solve some of the riddles that the first book might have posed. Did you reshoot it? Uh, Well, there were no photographs in the original, which was kind of merciful. That's good.
1: Um, So what else is on the docket for this? uh,
2: Well, so the one we uh, just published last year is um, also coincidentally from 1969, uh, was Graham Care, the Galloping Gourmet's first cookbook, which, against all expectation, was ruthlessly scientific and beautifully laid out super modernist and super ahead of its time for having three forms of measurement and um having this interesting take on the foods of the south pacific because he created it when he was living over seven years in new zealand
1: yeah he was his father was in the navy yeah right yeah we wrote a we had published a profile in 2017 on graham and we went and found him in seattle living in retirement that was a beautiful piece yeah Yeah. it was heather R. anderson wrote that um Really nice piece. Great chef. Like wow, yeah, um, transformative. But- and
3: transformative. if you talk to chefs of a certain generation, they're like, "Oh yeah, like I I love that." And you know, my mom had it on on the television all the time, and it really influenced me. And then, the, for you know, the other re- reaction we get is like, "Oh, we're republishing Graham Care. and everyone's like, "He's still alive," you know. And not only is he still alive, he's still got his chops.
2: Like he is so entertaining and so um sharp and clever. Um, What was cool about that project, which we'll probably never be able to experience again, is that he was able to go back to his own work and annotate it, write mm. like I've got these handwritten sort of comments on stuff that we were able to lay over fun. the recipe, um, and that layer, you know, just adding layers to a cookbook of uh,
3: of content is really kind of fun.
1: Is there a third? Can you announce? Is there another We one? can't we announce can't, a third. We're still wrestling we're still with doing that hurdles rights and thing. stuff.
3: And a lot of times, you know, like with the rights thing with Princess Pamela, it was, uh, um, oh, um Someone in this very Bertals, building. In this, who, someone in this very mm-hmm. building that owned the rights and we tried to chase down that and find out whether that was a work for hire or what, mm-hmm. were they in contact with family members because th- they would know and that we never got a response. It was Listener, like this we is a private these company.
1: at Penguin Random House <laughs> headquarters. <laughs> that is what this building is. And it is a serious pain in the ass trying to track down rights but, but when you end up doing it it's so worth it so yeah. we will look for the third iteration of your re, reprint series thank you love thank it you Matt Lee and Ted Lee thank you for joining the Taste Podcast
3: thanks so much for having
1: Pleasure.
0: us the Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me Anna Hiesel the show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis studio recordings by Pat Stango Theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening.